This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lang coming to you from Ngunnawal country, Canberra. More than 2,500 people are dead and thousands more injured after a huge earthquake in Turkey and neighbouring Syria. A magnitude 7.8 quake hit in the early hours, bringing down thousands of buildings as people slept before a second powerful aftershock several hours later. An enormous rescue effort's been hampered by severe winter weather and scores of aftershocks. While in war-torn Syria, emergency help is desperately needed. Middle East correspondent Tom Joyner reports from Istanbul. Across vast swathes of Turkey and Syria, rescuers have spent the day desperately picking through mountains of rubble. They call out for a sign of life. Too often they're met by silence as the death toll rises by the hour in the bitter cold. In the Turkish province of Karamanmarash, a mother screams in relief as her daughter is pulled alive from the snow. Most people were in bed when the quake shook their homes for minutes this morning, toppling thousands of buildings in southeast Turkey and neighbouring Syria. In Idlib, in Syria's north, Osama Abdel Hamid and his family escaped their third-floor apartment. God saved us. A wooden door fell and protected us. My three kids are here with wounds to their head and faces, but my daughter wasn't injured. My wife, however, has a head wound. Thank God we came here and got first aid. The building had four storeys. None of the people in the other three stories have survived. The tremors were felt as far as Lebanon, Cyprus, Egypt and Israel. Rescuers risked their lives through dozens of aftershocks. Hours after the disaster, a second huge magnitude 7.5 quake hit Turkey's Karamanmaraş province again. This was the moment it was caught on live TV as a building collapses and survivors and rescuers run for their lives. Now, as every hour passes, rescuers are struggling to reach many disaster zones through damaged roads and even by air, in snow, rain and freezing conditions. Turkey's defence minister is Halusi Akar. There are obstacles regarding the readiness of the regional airports. There are problems with local weather conditions. And there are cracks in some of the tarmacs. Taking these facts into consideration, we're trying to get our teams and equipment to the region as soon as possible. Across the border, Syria was already in ruins after more than a decade of civil war, which has displaced millions of people. Doctors and emergency workers there are struggling to cope. Video from a hospital in a rebel-held area of Aleppo province shows wounded patients and body bags on the floor. In nearby towns, survivors like Hamdo al-Sheikh are forced to search for loved ones on their own. I'm waiting to pull out my brother and his family, him and his seven children. They pulled someone out, but it wasn't them. They took him away. Everyone is pulling out their own family members. May God help us. In rebel-held areas, rescue groups like Syria's White Helmets are the only help at hand. In video released by the group, spokesman Ishmael Abdallah fights back tears. Many families now are under the rubble. Our team's trying to save them, but it's a very difficult task for us. We need help. We need the international community to do something to help us, to support us. We need help from everyone to, 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 to save our people. Dozens of countries have pledged aid and rescuers to Turkey, but in war-torn Syria, 
help could be much more difficult to find. This is Tom Joyner in Turkey reporting for AM. The federal parliamentary year is off with a bang, with the Senator quitting the Greens party for the crossbench over her concerns with the voice to parliament. Debate over the referendum is bubbling along. So too, discussion about alcohol fueled unrest in Alice Springs, as well as cost of living pressures with high inflation and high interest rates with the Reserve Bank expected to jack up the official rate later today. Joining us now in the Parliament House studios is Peter Dutton, the Leader of the Opposition. Good morning and welcome back to AM. Good morning, Sabra. Thank you. When will the Liberal Party make a decision about whether you will vote yes or no on The Voice? Well, Sabra, we've asked uh, the Prime Minister uh, for more detail, and I think it's reasonable that we do so. This thought that asking for detail is some radical proposition is, is a nonsense. There's uh, clearly a lot of thinking still going on within the government. Uh, uh, Senator Dodson was out yesterday talking about uh, whether The Voice would have an end to the National Cabinet. Now, I don't know whether that's part of what would be implemented. But I think if the government can lay it out, then people can be more informed and make their judgment. But uh, I I would uh, expect in the not too distant future. But there are a lot of my colleagues, I think like a lot of Australians who, uh, I I think 99.9% of Australians, frankly, who want to see the situation improve for Indigenous Australians. We want to see reconciliation advanced. But we want to have some assurance that uh, the model they're talking about at a very lofty level is going to have a positive impact uh, for people on the ground, including in places like Alice Springs. The Morrison government considered this. It went before Cabinet twice. I'm also told it went before the Expenditure Review Committee to find the money to fund a referendum. But the former Prime Minister subsequently got cold feet. You were part of that razor gang at the time. Why was it OK then, but not now? Well, I'm, I'm not going to go into Cabinet uh, discussions from uh, any, any time that I've been in Cabinet, but... I'd make this point. Uh, There was an increase in spending on uh, Indigenous health, uh, on every aspect of Indigenous uh, policy, education, etc., trying to close or narrow the gap uh, in relation to all of those key indicators. So there was never a reluctance to spend money uh, or to provide support to communities. Uh, But as we know, and as the Prime Minister's pointed out, this is not a failing of the Labor Party or the Liberal Party. Uh, It spanned a long time, and it's why I believe very strongly if we can find a bipartisan position in this area of public policy, uh, then that would be the best approach. But it's it's frustrating when circumstances like we're seeing in Alice Springs are brought to the attention of the government and nothing happens for months and months. And the Indigenous women and elders in Alice Springs have been crying out for a long period of time for assistance and it hasn't been forthcoming. If you're genuine about finding that bipartisan approach and being undecided about the voice, is there a chance that and there is a chance that you will back it. Do you worry that your approach on this might undermine public confidence in it? I don't think so. I think there's, uh, I mean, in the Fairfax poll, you saw that 13% of Australians understand uh, the voice. In the uh, News Limited uh, poll yesterday, you've roughly got, uh, say, a quarter of about 30% of Australians who are strongly in favour. And then it's partly in favour, somewhat against, um, totally against I think a lot of that is driven just by the fact that instinctively people, as I said before, want to do the right thing but don't understand what it is the government's proposing. The Prime Minister makes constant reference to uh, the Langton Karma report. It's about 272 pages. But he hasn't said that if there is a yes vote at uh, the constitutional referendum, that that report will be implemented. In, In actual fact, there are options that are provided to government in that report. And sort of day day after day, we we hear these different thought bubbles from the government. I think what would give people more assurance is if 
there is a, a bill that can explain how it's going to work because there are different models as but well, that, Sabra. You're, you're, putting, aren't you putting the cart before the horse? The referendum is on the voice itself and that's what Indigenous people asked for from the Uluru Statement from the Heart and it's up to Parliament then to debate the details of how that will work. It's, but it, but it's, it's more complicated than that. I mean, that, that, with respect, I mean, that, that's how the government puts it. But the fact is that there are models that people who might be in the, the, the sort of undecided column at the moment that would cross over to support the voice if they understood it properly. And people recognise that changing the constitution is a very significant decision to make. And if you're changing the law, as the government can do now, because they've got a majority in the lower house, they can introduce the bill by way of, uh, introduce uh, the voice by way of legislation tomorrow. And they could demonstrate how it works. But there are different models which people could support, others which they don't think would be effective or helpful on the ground. And that, that's the point that needs to be made. And yes, at the but referendum, you're, you're voting for a higher level uh, model. But if Pat Dodson's now talking about having a seat at the table for National Cabinet, uh, that, that is not just an advisory seat there. This is a body that would be enshrined in the Constitution. We need to understand the import of that. Just getting back to the, the snippet I talked to you about earlier, that the Expenditure Review Committee under the Morrison government considered this and had ticked off on it, but the Prime Minister got cold feet. Is it possible that there is a group within the Liberal Party now who will never vote yes? There's a vote that will never vote no. You can't reconcile those two groups without splitting the party and bringing your leadership under question? Well, I, I don't think people should speculate about uh, what, what the Liberal Party might or might not do until we make an announcement and we have the discussion. I've spoken with many of my colleagues uh, over Christmas and uh, in relation to this and other issues, I mean, cost of living is a huge issue across the community uh, at the moment and growing as, as a particular problem for, for small businesses and families, including in Indigenous communities, of course. So there, there are many issues uh, to, to grapple with this year, as you pointed out in your intro. Uh, in relation to uh, the, the voice, I, I think people want that detail. They want to have uh, all of the detail before them so that they can um, make make an informed decision. I just don't think it's a it's an outrageous proposition that if you're being asked to change the constitution in 1967, was the, pre the previous government prepared to lay out the kind well, of detail I'm, I'm that you're talking into, about? I'm now. not going into expenditure review committee discussions uh, as you know. If there was a government minister sitting here at the moment who was on the ERC. They're not disclosing that, those sort of cabinet in confidence discussions. Uh, all I can say is that uh, every discussion I was involved in uh, resulted in more money going into programs to support Indigenous Australians. OK, what more now needs to happen in Alice Springs? Well, certainly uh, we need to do more about the drugs that are rife in the community. It's not just alcohol that's changing the behaviour of, uh, uh, of young people in particular. We need to do more in relation to the protection of children, probably the first priority by any measure and there is you know um, there, there is a lot of uh, thought I think in the minds of public servants in Northern Territory of the stolen generation and people don't want to repeat that mistake understandably but we've got children who we know are being sexually abused and we're putting them back into an environment where they're not safe and I don't care what the circumstances what culture we're talking about we can't be putting anything above the interests of the child and the protection of those children and the Prime Minister's made no comment in relation to what I think is the most important issue. Alcohol is certainly uh, a very influencing factor and we applaud the Northern Territory Government for overturning their decision but uh, the protection of children is still paramount and uh, we don't want to take people away from their country, still want them to have a connection to their country but there are a lot of loving families in Alice Springs and 
uh, in the community within the Northern Territory that could take care of those children. And uh, it, it horrifies me to think, and the whistleblowers I've spoken to in Alice Springs uh, are out on mental health uh, and stress uh, leave at the moment because uh, you know, they've got kids grabbing onto their legs as they're taking them back into that community or into that household. That is completely unacceptable and it needs to be addressed. Uh, and, and there are many more factors uh, that we would be happy to work with the Prime Minister on to try and get that better outcome. Okay. We could have a long discussion about um, interest rates, uh, but what would you do differently right now to ease pressures, knowing that there are going to be billions of dollars this year from federal and state governments for relief? Well, I think when you look at uh, the decisions the government's made so far, it's not going to relieve the pressure that the Reserve Bank is under. It's going to increase the pressure. And this is why interest That's rates are always... because world events too are, in, are affecting well, what's well, happening World here. events always influence uh, interest rates and uh, the RBA takes that into consideration, always has, uh, since they've had their targets. And the fact is, though, that this government has made decisions which has put upward pressure on interest rates, including, for example, in relation to industrial relations. So over the next couple of years, when you are going to have uh, probably sticky inflation uh, by uh, most analysis that I can read at the moment, you are going to have a situation where the Albanese government is feeding into that upward pressure on interest rates, and that is going to be passed on to families at a time when they can least afford it. Peter Dutton, thank you so much for joining the program this morning. Pleasure. Thanks, Sabra. With the Reserve Bank Board meeting today, as we've just mentioned, stretched homeowners are bracing for a hit to their budgets. Most analysts think the cash rate will be pushed up by a quarter of a percentage point to 3.35%. As renters and homeowners bear the brunt of rising costs, advocates say now's the time for a serious conversation about reform. Oliver Gordon reports. 35-year-old borrower Timothy Kilroy is getting close to the edge. It's hard to sort of say how long I can keep this up, but things are definitely very, very tight. The New South Wales office worker's mortgage is more than half a million dollars. He's cut back on non-essential expenses. We don't really eat out. Yeah, yeah, our family holidays are pretty simple now. Personally, I've, I've cut the gym membership away. But even after reining in spending, Timothy says monthly mortgage repayments account for about 80% of his family's outgoings. Each fortnight, we've probably only got about $300 or thereabouts you know, to try and do all of those other things. Expectations are that the RBA will deliver another quarter of a percentage point rate hike today, taking the cash rate to 3.35%. While Timothy says he'll be able to handle that, he doesn't know how many more jumps he can take. Later down the track, uh, maybe six months, I may be at a pretty dire situation and be, be forced to sell. It's not just borrowers feeling the pinch. Data from CoreLogic released last month showed the median cost of a rental in Australia rose by 10.2% in the space of a year. May Azizi from the Everybody's Home campaign says the increased costs are having an impact. We speak to a lot of people who are um, skipping a, a couple of meals a week and that could be getting worse. The housing reform advocate says with so many hurting, it's incumbent on the federal government to consider scrapping negative gearing laws. So right now we have a system where investors can write off their losses on tax. So when interest rates go up, as they're expected to this week, they'll actually be able to, to claim a tax break on that. And it's all taxpayers who are funding that or they can pass them on to their tenants. There has been some speculation the RBA could raise rates by 0.4 of 1%, placing the official cash rate at 3.5%.
But Head of Research at CoreLogic, Tim Lawless, says that would be a surprise. Because I think most uh, most punters would be expecting uh, something more in line with 25 basis points. And for those wondering how long this string of rising rates will continue, the market analyst has offered this glimpse into the crystal ball. I think it's fair to say that there will be another rate hike today and maybe another one in March, but hopefully that's getting towards the peak of where interest rates are going to land. But to be fair, interest rate forecasts vary remarkably from one more rate hike today through to another three or four rate hikes. It just really highlights the sheer uncertainty in the economy at the moment and uh, the, the divided opinion on where interest rates are going to peak. The head of research at CoreLogic, Tim Lawless, ending Oliver Gordon's report there. Is it any wonder many people love the idea of giving up the internet with emails on smartphones, stretching the workday, not to mention anonymous trolling and bullying? New research from the eSafety Commissioner shows three out of four of us have experienced at least one negative episode while online during the past 12 months. That's an increase of 30% since 2019. Nick Grimm reports. For many of those who remember a time before the internet, the online realm remains a scary and difficult place to visit. A lot of times people don't know, so they're not aware and they get dragged in. Absolutely. And, you know, you do get the spams, you do get the, you know, continuous in your emails. I feel it's very dangerous, especially for the children. Um, I have three children and I'm always worried about them, you know, what they're doing online and who they're talking to. And And even for those born into a digitally connected world, the internet is still a place with plenty of murky, unpleasant corners. People have even messaged me asking me for, like, sexual pictures and all that, which is quite confronting. But how do you deal with it when you see things like that? Oh, I just block them. Have you ever had a negative experience online? Um, once, but I just deleted the comment and moved on. Is that what people should do, just delete and move on? Yeah, they don't know you, you don't know them. But with three out of every four Australians having endured something akin to that in the past 12 months, many find it difficult to move on. One in three adults said that these negative online experiences impacted their emotional and mental well-being. But one in six said it impacted their physical health. You know that it's distressing when it's impacting people physiologically. Australia's eSafety Commissioner Julie Inman-Grant has released new research showing that not only are more Australians suffering negative experiences but more are also admitting to being the perpetrators of the abuse. Now, we saw all forms of online abuse increase during the pandemic. Everyone was online. There was a lot of fear, uncertainty and doubt around the pandemic. We would have expected to see some tapering off or even plateauing of that. So it is it is a little bit disheartening uh, to see that this is continuing apace. What are the factors driving this increase? Why are people engaging in this sort of harmful activity? You know, that's a good question. We had one in six people admit that they are treating others badly online. We know that it's largely men from metro areas and under the age of 40. They're also frequently targeting people close to them, not necessarily strangers. About a third uh, will target strangers, but others are targeting friends or family members or partners or ex-partners from real life. And um, they say that some of the, the top drivers are just for fun and amusement to express their opinions, but also to punish, embarrass or shame their targets. It's eSafety Commissioner Julie Inman-Grant, Nick Grimm, the reporter there. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. 
Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. China says it was simply a weather balloon gone astray, but the Pentagon says Beijing was spying. Today, an aerospace engineer and national security expert on what China's up to. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.